You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by Master Replicas. Find the largest collection of rare Starship models from your favorite franchises like Doctor Who, Alien, Stargate, and of course, Star Trek at MasterReplicas.com. Be the first to know about exclusive drops at MasterReplicas.com. This episode is also sponsored by Rocket Money. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash mission log. That's rocketmoney.com slash mission log. Rocketmoney.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 517, Retrospect. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we take an objective and evidence-based approach to examining an episode of Star Trek. Then we size it up to see what it all means and if it stands the test of time. This week, Retrospect, the one where the Doctor's earnestness gets the best of him, while Seven is possibly victimized by an alien arms merchant. As ever, there's plenty to say about this one, and we hope you'll join the conversation. And here is how you can stay in touch with us. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on X, formerly known as Twitter, and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. We'll have trivia in a moment, but first, a word from Master Replicas. Hey, we are so happy to welcome back, for the first time, the collection at Master Replicas. Now, Master Replicas have an incredibly extensive collection of ships that you may remember from Eagle Moss. You probably remember many, many times us talking about, on this very show, our love for a teeny tiny starships. Well... There are so many. In fact, there is something like 400 unique models from Star Trek alone, which is way more than there are for any other franchise. Uh, well, and see, and what other series could possibly have 400 ships? Well, it's it's not just Star Trek, by the way, uh, encompassing uh, the catalog at Master Replicas. Oh no, no, no! You will find ships from your favorite franchises like Alien and Stargate and Doctor Who and so many more but uh yeah there's more than 400 just from star trek so go check them out now here's here john here's an important detail that i think we all should know Mm -hmm. it's a bad news good news kind of thing so bad news is that you know all of those beautiful hand-finished hand-painted you know meticulously designed ships well yeah they're not being made anymore oh ouch okay yeah yeah good news here's the good news master replicas they've been able to get their hands around all the old stock and they're selling it off. So uh-huh. they've got most of the things. We've taken a look at what they have, and we've gotten most mm-hmm. of the things. If you would get, it, like, you know, an XL Enterprise, for example, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. or something that I've just recently ordered, the XL Prometheus, because <laughs> nice. we just covered that, right? <laughs> yes. Or the Defiant. Yes. You know, things that were available, then they weren't. 
Then they got put on eBay for prices that would literally make a Ferengi. Bridge. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That that was the worst part. It was like trying to hunt this stuff down on eBay when it was all gone. And you're like, oh, I, I, I can't spend a thousand dollars on that one thing that I want. But no, no, they are back at their normal prices at Master Replicas. And I was just taking a look through like right now. If you missed your chance to get an XL Cerritos. They've got it. I missed my chance to get V'ger, and they've got it. That that ship that we actually didn't get to see in the original cut of Star Trek The Motion Picture, Sid Mead's design, well, they've got it. And, of course, they all come beautifully packaged with that gorgeous stand and with the additional information that you expect from your Eagle Moss collection. And you already know about the quality and detail in these tiny starships. They are so good. Whenever possible, they're actually made using the original CG model that were used to make the visual effects on these shows. So you know that they are accurate and authentic. Master Replicas have only got the rights to sell these for a certain amount of time, though. How long? Well, stick with us because we will update you right here to let you know. In the meantime, do not delay. Go to masterreplicas.com. Tell them Mission Log sent you when you place your first order and sign up for the newsletter, too, so you can be the first to know about special promotions and exclusive drops. That address, again, is masterreplicas.com. Again, masterreplicas.com. And now, here's John Champion with this week's trivia. All right, let's talk about Retrospect. We have a story by Andrew Shepard Price and Mark Gaberman. Welcome back to a writing pair who have a story credit on five episodes of Voyager. And we are in the middle of their run. And you may recall they contributed a, a little story that turned into the perennial favorite, Tuvix. Just another non-controversial story for us to sink our teeth into. Uh, but what they submitted as a pitch was quite different from what finally aired. And in that case, the teleplay credit is shared by Brian Fuller and Lisa Klink, who took it from a straight-up sci-fi story about literally harvesting Borg tech to create an army to one that then centered on the unreliability of memory. They apparently tag-teamed the script, alternating scene by scene, to knock this one into shape. It was directed by Jesus Salvador Trevino, and remember that Jesus made his Trek directorial debut with the Voyager episode Fair Trade, and then he bounced between this show and DS9 a few times for a total of eight episodes under his belt, and we're nearly at the end of his Voyager run with just one more episode coming up later this season. Let's turn our attention to two guest stars. We have a very official Intharan magistrate played by Adrian Sparks. This is his only Star Trek credit thus far, but he's got a handful of other genre credits to his name, like My Stepmother is an Alien, It Came from Outer Space 2, and a couple of Dune video games. Those are among many TV and film roles, though, as Adrian has been working regularly since the 1970s and appeared as recently as 2023 in the HBO series Barry. Then there's the central catalyst for this story, Coven, played by Michael Horton. Now, Michael survived an encounter with the Borg before. That's because he played Lieutenant Daniels in Star Trek First Contact. Later on, Daniels returned in Star Trek Insurrection. This is Michael's third and so far final appearance in Star Trek, 
but he also had quite an extensive career since the 70s. You may have seen him on a recurring gig as Jessica Fletcher's nephew on Murder, She Wrote, and you may have even caught him as numerous characters on more than 50 episodes of one of my favorite shows as a child, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. More likely, though, you've heard his voice, since Michael can be heard as characters in everything from Spider-Man to Transformers to The Incredible Hulk to Jem. Welcome to the Delta Quadrant, where haggling isn't commerce, it's practically unarmed combat. Prologue. Meet Mr. Coven, an alien with a knack for sales now trying his best to impress Janeway with a powerful weapon he has to offer. The captain is very interested and offers up some astrometric data and isolinear chips in exchange. They both drive a hard bargain, but a deal is made and Coven goes off to engineering where a reluctant Seven of Nine will assist with integrating the weapon into Voyager's systems. As they work, Coven gets bossy and condescending towards Seven, so much that she rears back and decks him. Act 1. In sickbay, the doctor tends to Coven's wounds. He'll be fine, but the way he tells the story, Seven just attacked him, unprovoked, like some kind of savage. Belana is there to tell the captain it wasn't quite like that, but regardless, Janeway has to discipline her Borg crew member again, but there really isn't a good way to punish and teach a lesson. We've been down this road before. So, Seven, think about what you've done. For real this time. She's off to sickbay for an examination by the doctor, but during the process, she appears anxious and uncomfortable. She's so agitated, in fact, that he must use a sedative to get her to calm down, and then he calls Janeway. He's got a possible answer to what's causing Seven's problem a repressed memory trying to emerge. With a new psychiatric subroutine he's been developing, and the captain's permission, the doctor maps out a plan for analysis. He guides Seven through relaxation and then recall of the images that pass into her mind. She sees, at first, a tricorder and then an examination bed in sickbay. The images turn darker, though, as she sees Coven in her mind's eye. He's holding some kind of device, and then startled, she tells the doctor that Coven forcibly extracted Borg technology from her body. He violated her. Act 2. On further reflection and analysis, Seven remembers more detail. She was with Tom Paris on the surface of the Antharan homeworld, testing other of Coven's weapons. She suggested a particular modification, and Coven obliged to work on it with her in his lab— but when they were there alone, he pointed the Thoron-based weapon directly at Seven and fired. She then remembers being strapped to an examination table, her ocular implant removed, and her arm implant stimulated to produce assimilation tubules for the purpose of harvesting Borg nanoprobes. Those nanoprobes were injected into a test subject, turning him into a Borg. Seven then remembers regaining consciousness where she was in Coven's lab, and he claimed that there was an overload that burned her hand. Only now, after recovering the memory, does she realize that she was attacked. The doctor brings this news to the captain. She's concerned about it, of course, and asks for further corroborating evidence. 
The doctor is convinced of the veracity of Seven's story, given the recent time frame of the memory, unlike less reliable recovery of older memories. Tuvok mentions that Seven did have a recent hallucinatory episode, but the doctor is adamant that the science backs up her claim. Janeway will investigate Coven, not just for Seven's sake, but also out of concern that a Borg nanoprobe could be extremely dangerous in the wrong hands. Meanwhile, she directs the doctor to continue his search for physical evidence that can confirm the details. Coven is defensive. When confronted by Janeway, he says Seven is lying, that the weapon overloaded, causing a misfire, and then he used a dermal regenerator to heal her wound, after apologizing profusely. Janeway's concern is that even a single nanoprobe could be dangerous, and she insists that she be given access to investigate Coven's lab. Act 3. Tuvok interrogates Coven, and he cops to a careless mistake, but he insists that there's nothing else. Coven feels concerned especially since his people value trade relationships above all else. The Antharan magistrate would just as soon allow Coven to be found guilty if it meant protecting another trade partner. Tuvok promises that, no matter, their only interest is in determining the truth. In sickbay, as the doctor attends to Seven's wounds, he also digs a little deeper into her emotional well-being. She's resistant at first, but then he taps into her anger over being victimized by Coven. It's a very human expression on Seven's part, and the doctor encourages it to the extent that he assures her that Coven's eventual punishment will be very satisfying. In Coven's lab, Tuvok and the doctor begin their evidence collection under the eyes of the magistrate and Coven himself. Every observation and every piece of technology the doctor questions, Coven has an answer. But it's more suspicious when traces of Seven's DNA are found and a few stray Borg nanoprobes, active nanoprobes. The doctor notes that if they were just residue, then they would be dormant. The magistrate has heard enough. He turns to Coven, announcing that he'll be in detention pending official proceedings. Cornered, Coven reaches for a weapon and beams himself away. On Voyager, Harry Kim is able to trace the transport beam to a ship in orbit. Once Tuvok and the Doctor, along with the Magistrate, are beamed up, they lay in a pursuit course. Coven is a step ahead, though, and with a photonic blast, knocks out Voyager's sensors. They'll need a moment to bring everything back online before the manhunt can continue. Act 4 while Voyager chases Coven's ship, the scientific investigation into Coven's lab equipment continues. There's no direct understanding of the situation that can be drawn without a more radical experiment. Tuvok suggests simulating the weapon's fire on Seven's arm to see how the nanoprobes react. Indeed, the test reveals that the nanoprobes activate and replicate exactly as observed before, which means that any attempt to directly implicate Coven is inconclusive at best. The same result could have come from an accidental overload. Janeway is gently understanding that Seven is angry, but could be having a memory that is influenced by past trauma such as Borg assimilation. The doctor agrees, even though he is the one who pursued this path, which leaves Seven to feel alone, and she still wants to see Coven punished. Act 5. Voyager has caught up to Coven's ship, and he answers the captain's hail. He's agitated, 
scared. Both Janeway and the doctor try to convince him that they realize that they came to the wrong conclusion and they just want him to come back so they can resolve this matter. He cuts off communication and fires another volley of photon pulses at Voyager. They can't effectively fight back and take evasive maneuvers while Harry attempts to lock on with a transporter beam. It's of no use, and Coven circles around for another photon blast. But as he charges his weapons again, the entire system overloads, destroying the ship and Coven with it. Three days later, the doctor has been questioned by the Antharan authorities and presumably exonerated since he's now back in sickbay. Seven enters to have her weekly checkup, but the doctor is distracted and short with her. She's got some complicated emotions over this whole incident, wishing to expunge the feelings of remorse she has over Coven's death. The doctor says she can't. That's all part of the process, but they will subside. Then he thinks to himself, perhaps there's another alternative for him. In Janeway's ready room now, the doctor has a proposal that the subroutines in his program that gave him the desire to grow beyond his original programming be deleted. He'll retain his medical knowledge, but is urged to experiment by being something more. A counselor, a psychologist, will be gone. Janeway denies him. This was a serious mistake, but she's not going to turn back the clock on the improvements he has made, even if this one comes with a hard lesson. The End Fantastic recap, John. And uh, just to, just to preface, uh, you know, before we get into observations, I just want to make sure that people take what we're saying in the spirit of what we're saying, because we don't want anyone's nose to get bent out of shape. <laughs> whoa, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Nicely done. I do not like the nasal ridge. It's, <laughs> you know that I love Michael Westmore mm-hmm. like crazy. I uh, do, do not like this nasal ridge. It's just weird and off-putting. But it's yeah. not, they're not all going to be winners. You know, so, no. I mean, with the amount, with, he's just so prolific and he's made so many applications that sometimes you just have to yeah. get the job done. And maybe that's the yeah. same for actors, too, because, you know, the actor who played Coven, dial it back just a little bit, bro. Just a little bit. And <laughs> but, but wait, but you've never met people like this? Because, you know. <sighs> yeah. Um, but at the same time, though, it's kind of like. If you don't have any maneuvering room for a character, there's nowhere for that character's expectation to go. Right? Yeah, yeah it is telegraphing. So that's all. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it is interesting, though, that there is such a strong interest on Voyager, specifically Janeway's part, on a weapon that is that powerful. I, I might have some things to say about that in the next segment, just in terms of uh, protocol, but but wow. It's like, you, you know, so much happens, and we're on the defensive, and now we meet some people who we barely know, and we're just going to buy weapons. Trade in the Delta Quadrant is very, very tricky. But... Yeah. I don't think that insulting a prospective client is probably the best way of a trade relationship <laughs> to move forward. <laughs> he, he could use a little bedside manner as yeah. well. Yeah. I wondered if Janeway intending to just give away isolinear chips, like, is that a thing you can just do? And can you do that with chips that you already have on hand? Like, does she go to people's cabins and just open up their replicator like i'm gonna need this more than you or uh can they just replicate a bunch of them and how do you determine if that's safe or not to just give away federation technology starfleet technology specifically yeah that's a good point you know uh 
Yeah. I'm just wondering, too, if we're going to reference that episode or episodes where they were really mm-hmm. concerned about how much Voyager and Starfleet technology was polluting the Delta Quadrant. Yeah, so, exactly. There was that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tom's line, uh, this guy's worse than a Ferengi. Wow, way to, way to show your bias, my friend. <laughs> that harkens all the way back to, the, to his issue with uh, Quark trying to hustle. Yep. Harry and and, Harry. and the and, uh, yes. caretaker, yeah, yeah, I do like that, yeah. And of course, you know, after our run in last week, Seven's back and she's been good, so all's well, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, it, we restrict all the privileges and this. Ah, well, we can't keep you away that long. And I, I mean, they did telegraph Coven, but I, I really can't blame her for decking him. Because I, I wanted to do the same. Thing. Well, sure, and that's I think that's kind yeah. of the point, and we'll get more probably yeah. into that in, uh, we in will. discussion. We will for sure. But yeah. so I'm wondering, did the Borg train Seven in hand to hand close quarter combat, or how did she know how to do exactly what she did with such a precise palm strike to the nose? <laughs> that is, you know, true. it's not like I, she flailed yes, out and hit him. She that was a that was a tactical yeah. attack move. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder if she's been getting security training from Tuvok or... Yeah, no. That's a good point. When we leave the prologue going to Act 1, you know, Coven's being treated by the doctor and Jane was trying to figure out what happened. Are we just basically going to say that there are no hidden cameras anywhere on the ship? Only when I you guess need so. them. They, they, are in, they are installed at the frequency of yeah. plot. So they they have as many security cameras on board as plot yeah, requires. Yeah, would have helped. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Janeway's line to Seven: You have to start learning the difference between having an impulse and acting on it. And then she says, "Does that make any sense to you?" <laughs> Talk about condescending! Yeah. Wow, wow. Yeah, yeah, that's the same scene where she says, "Tired uh, Seven, I'm tired of having this conversation." You know what? I agree. Yeah. I'm, I'm tired yeah. of them having this conversation, too. I'm tired of me having this conversation about that conversation. <laughs> I, I I actually really appreciate it, though, because it, it does acknowledge the internal consistency of the show. And it isn't just – like, think about, you know, Data takes over the Enterprise, endangers everybody – never say a word about it again. There's not even like a sideways glance from Riker or Picard ever again. And here it's just like, uh, this is a pain and there's like an emotional and professional burden that comes with this. So yeah, I, I, I like that it's built in but, to what's yeah, happening but The thing here. is that it's, I, I would have gotten yeah. it if it was something like she did with... In, in the previous episode. But the guy was getting handsy with her, and he was rude, and she popped him. Yeah, yeah. That's not a lesson that was quite explained to her in previous episodes. You know, sure. It's not like, it's sure. not like Bellana yeah. and, uh, and Carrie, you know, when she popped him in the nose. <laughs> I missed yeah. that. Tell you who I also miss, Gossip Doctor. Oh, yeah. Gossip Doctor is back. So that, that was kind of <laughs> cool. And I love his line, when you get irritated, just try to be taller and remember, they can't help being what they yeah. are. <laughs> I'm meeting people well that was kind of like going back to kind of the jaren's attitude when you know they were talking about you know Mm -hmm. biologicals being inferior so that was you know yes yes very interesting um i also liked it when he said so i heard there was some excitement today right do tell tell. i thought jerry was great with the just the nuanced acting with her anxiety going into the 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 medical chamber and the scanner and the doctor kind of hovering over her you could tell that something is changing in Seven. 
in some way. Yeah. Yeah. It it was so well acted, so well conveyed. I was really impressed with the doctor's expansion of his own program with psychology. I think that's a very cool thing. But but we miss the opportunity here for the Star Trek rule of three, mm -hmm. because he mentions Carl Jung and then he goes directly to Amanan of Beta Z and you're missing one in the middle. You needed to go from like right. Jung to Freud, then to Amanen, but that that's okay. Uh, they, they they hit two at least. All right, John. So prepare to have your mind blown. All okay. right. And for all of you fans out there of a certain era of science fiction, you might get your mind blown too. Do you remember that it was some type of device? It was it was a black pistol shaped device that Seven says was. It's kind of kind of. Curvy looking. Yeah. It was kind of like sculpted. Looks like something that yeah, Batman yeah, yeah, would yeah. use, right? Yeah. So yeah. the moment I saw that, I had to confirm my suspicions. It's the exact same prop that was refurbished and somewhat modified, but it was the Pax Dart Gun used. Are you serious? Yes, I am. Used by John Saxon's Dylan Hunt in Gene Roddenberry's 1974 Planet Earth. Oh my God. That is is very yeah. cool. I had no idea. Like, I thought it looked a little out of step yep. for the props that we normally see on Star mm -hmm. Trek. That is super yeah. cool. Good yeah, find. That was fun. It, it was interesting. Of course, this is in a in a uh, memory part, but so the implication here is that the Doctor removes something like 80% of Seven's Borg technology, but not the part that assimilates. <laughs> Seems like that would be a priority, is take away the assimilation tubules. Right. Um, tubules mm -hmm. is such a funny word. You know? Yeah, it is. Um, anyway. Is. Yeah. Not so funny, though. So the alien pulse rifle that Coven was showing Seven and Tom to use. Okay, so mm -hmm. like, the, like you have that issue with Coven's forehead ridge or his nose ridge. I have the yeah. same problem with this prop. I think that design is terrible. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's not it's, good. It, it really looks like someone found like a broken Dyson vacuum canister and stuck like yeah. you know, like an emitter on it, yeah. repainted it, and they're like, there you go, sci-fi rifle. The funny thing is, like yeah. behind behind Coven, his henchman had like a really cool looking rifle. Like a real rifle mm -hmm. looking rifle. The uh the Herogen have nothing on this weaponry. Nothing. No, not at all. Oh, by the way, uh, speaking of props in Coven's lab, most important prop in the world. Yes, yes. Golf clap for that. Mm -hmm. So happy to see that prop. Bravo to Star Trek for putting it back in. And we haven't seen it in a while, so good on them. Nice reference back to the Raven, yep. I thought, mentioning the hallucinations. That was a cool bit of continuity. Oh, by the way, and I guess it would be Seven's memories. No one remembers to one important de detail in that where there's a, a female accomplice in the story mm -hmm. that no one right? investigated or tried to even find to see if it was part of the investigation. Not to mention the possibly dead, possibly alive Borg that they created yeah. in the lab. It seems like that would be a thing that you would find. Small or, part. Or is this out there assimilating? Yeah, yeah. a small part. Well, it, with its own tubules. Mm -hmm. right. Yes, now, Coven says that the Antharan magistrate is more interested in maintaining diplomatic relations with people like you. Sure. Okay. But there are no others like Voyager, seeing as how they are 60,000 light years from home. This is not going to be a long-term relationship, just telling you right now. What do you, what do you so, mean, you people? Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So here's a, a question with, again, with the investigation, of which I'm going to bring many questions after in, mm -hmm. uh, in mm -hmm. discussion. So... 
why wasn't Coven injured when the rifle malfunctioned? Mm. He was standing so close to Seven, so yeah. wouldn't they test his skin for any radiation burns or thorium residue? I mean... Good point. That's, you know... Yeah. Good point. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Uh, very good line here. And there are so many good points and just sort of like uh, poignant things to point out. But I, I think we'll try to narrow some down for our next segment. Seven has this great line. Resentment is a human trait. It has no structure, no function. I want no part of right. it. Um, just love the way that was written. Love the way it was delivered. I said this before, and I think it was in After Dark, you know, on, on our Discord. But Seven... Mm-hmm. It's very much like where Spock was at the beginning of, at the end of Star Trek Three and the beginning of Star Trek Four, when he's going through all of those different re-education programs. Oh, yeah. And then kind of stumbled yeah. on that one line where it, the computer asked him, how do you feel? And he goes, I do not understand right. the question. And I find a lot yeah. of that in Seven now. Like every time that she experiences a new reaction to something or a new emotion that hasn't been defined, she's like, I don't know what that yeah. means. Should I know what that means? That's a no. great point. Yeah. I, that's so interesting because like Spock, who is just zipping through all those other questions, Seven has all the knowledge in the world, all the knowledge in the galaxy, you know, but doesn't have the emotional or kind of uh, wisdom framework to build from right. that. It, it's just facts. This is data without framework. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and a uh, data with little right. D, not not. You know, date of the or person. Data. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Or data. <laughs> yeah. By the way, they do easily find in the investigation there are nanoprobes on the table. Shouldn't they be quarantining that place? So the doctor says, I'll take a sample. And he kind of points his thing at it. I, I, if there are Borg nanoprobes just wandering around on a table, at that place, you should put up the yellow police tape, probably just shoot it with a phaser from space right. because, yeah, that's bad news. Are they like fleas? Are they like Borg fleas? You know, you just can't get rid of them. Yeah, apparently. And apparently they replicate and they will just take you over given a chance. When the doctor asks, uh, he asks Tuvok to scan Coven's lab to see if anything has been recently altered. We never got an answer to that. That's true. Right? Just Tuvok kind of like wanders around and uses his tricorder to scan things. And there have been episodes where it's like, there's a false panel behind this door. There's an extra room that shouldn't be here. Did you find anything, Tuvok? What? 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 No? Oh, yeah. I, I must be preoccupied <laughs> right. with all the Borg nanoprobes smothering me right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also a bit of a failing on Tuvok's part. So Coven just kind of whimpers, no. And then he reaches for a weapon. And Tuvok, he's just standing there pretty slow on the uptake to, like, pull the phaser or anything. Yeah, it's, it's also not a good look mm-hmm. when, like, you're, you know, the number one suspect in a possible crime. And then you flee said crime scene with a weapon trained on the investigators. Yeah, not a good look. Yeah, Norman, you mentioned before the scenes in sickbay where uh, Seven is being examined and her physical discomfort at that is portrayed very well. That comes back again when she has to go through with this experiment. Even though it's less invasive, it's less uh, claustrophobic, you just – in her physicality, the discomfort at the whole thing I think is very well Mm -hmm. played. But then the test that we get out of it – uh, and I think we'll come back to this and how we wrap this up, though. It's still inconclusive. I mean, the nanoprobes regenerate, but could that or does that have uh, anywhere in the realm of possibility that that could come from an accidental overload? 
or a purposeful shot? Like, have we determined one or the other? I don't think we have, but uh, maybe we'll come back to that in the ambiguity of the stories. I yeah, it, there's much to be said about okay. a lot of that. All also right. much to be said about the mm-hmm. hypo spray, because it's kind of like a sonic screwdriver in this episode, right? It injects yeah. seven and recreates the thorium radiation overload all in one application. It slices. It does. It dices. It administers medicine. <laughs> recreates evidence from the crime scene. But wait, there's more, right? So <laughs> There we go. Yeah, it is kind of magical at this yeah. point. And also because we, we just harvested more nanoprobes that are active and that are replicating, again, nanoprobes everywhere at this right. point there's no force field around you know underneath the microscope they're just there on no the who who needs it <laughs> they're just going to be crawling all over the place um so coven's fleeing fires on voyager once twice three times a shady mm-hmm. so i'm just saying yeah <laughs> yeah still still mm-hmm. shady yeah now here's the line finding the nanoprobes led us to the wrong conclusion we know now that your Thoron rifle did overload. Well, your experiment, though, did not give you a new conclusion. It simply included your other candidate hypothesis. That, If I am not mistaken here, it does nothing to prove or disprove Coven's intention. But maybe I'm ahead of myself here, and this is getting to the end with... Uh, the ambiguity of the situation. But I do love the acting in this episode. Um, Bob Picardo can mm. do just as much just staring at a wall, you know, just contemplating what has happened with a quality performance as if he's like delivering dialogue. He's just so good at understanding the moment that he's in. And I really yeah. like that. I really like that end scene with him. I, I think maybe one of the most profound things about this is that the doctor has been spreading his programming out into new realms, new new places. And just the sheer fact that he would feel something about that and feel the kind of remorse that makes him, compels him to go into the captain's office to say, I need this to be removed. That alone is the answer to whether or not he is growing beyond his programming. Just that emotional response he's having, I think, is utterly fascinating. It kind of goes back to the whole question about did Data actually have emotions or not? I think at this point, the doctor is an emotional being with a very complex emotional and inner life. It's called remorse, and you'll like it a lot just didn't have the right ring to it. We'll get right back to retrospect after a word from this week's sponsor, Rocket Money. Hey, I've brought this up before. This would be an impossible question to answer. If somebody just came up to you, let's say I just came up to you somewhere at uh, at a Star mm-hmm. Trek convention, perhaps, and I just said, hey, how many subscriptions do you have? Uh, first of all, you would think, John, that is a very intrusive and inappropriate question, but I'm still going to ask it. How many subscriptions do you have, <laughs> and can you list them all and tell me how much money you are paying for those subscriptions? I guarantee that in addition to you being put off by me asking that, you wouldn't be able to answer it because all of us are walking around with subscriptions and paying money for things that we don't even remember that we signed up for. And very often you look at your bank statement, you look at maybe your credit card app and you go, oh wait, I don't remember uh, uh, authorizing that 
$15 or $20 a month charge, and yet here it is. And that money just disappears month after month after month. Now, I have helped my family with this exact same situation and actually uncovered places where we had two simultaneous forgotten subscriptions to a streaming service, which I will not name here, and they had no idea that this was happening. Well, it took that kind of investigative work that is being done by Rocket Money to figure it out. Yeah, I've undergone the same situation too. I've been doing a little bit of tech juggling and sometimes you don't like log out of certain applications from one device to another. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, I can't get into like one application that I really, really, really need. So I'm going to sign up for that same app with, you know, my same kind of security details. And now I have two accounts Mm -hmm. because I just forgot to close one account. And that's what Rocket Money is going to help you with. It's a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and it monitors your spending and it helps you lower your bills. That's what we want. We want to be able to save money by lowering our outgoing expenses. Mm -hmm. So just like John and what he was doing for his family, for like myself and for others that I know, we can see these subscriptions in one place at Rocket Money. And if we see something we don't want, we can cancel it with a tap. That's it. I never have to get on the phone with customer service because sometimes they just won't be able to help you in the kind of fashion and speed that you need. Also, they'll even try to get you a refund for that last couple months of wasted money because no one likes wasting money. Nope. And they'll probably they'll help you negotiate to lower your bills by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill Rocket Money, it takes care of the rest. Ah, That is amazing. Worth its weight in gold. Now, Rocket Money has over 5 million users. And the, the economics of this always blows my mind, right? Because Rocket Money has helped those users save an average, an average of $720 a year. You add all that up, and that is over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. My mind will never cease being blown by that. Now, stop wasting money on things that you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash mission log. That's rocketmoney.com slash mission log. Save a few bucks. Take it from us, rocketmoney.com slash mission log. Okay, John, so there's nothing short of some, you know, some pretty interesting, somewhat heavy and some pretty interesting heavy topics oh, yeah. all together, yeah. you know, uh, in this episode. And I want to start off with one that's, it's kind of interesting, it's a little bit light, mm-hmm. because you know, we got to start from light and go into heavy or else, you know, this is going to be really, really <laughs> yeah. topsy-turvy, lopsided. The doctor, hollow physician, heal thyself, mm-hmm. right? There's a really interesting turn with the doctor here that we were talking about, you know, towards the end of, you know, our observations. And there's a scene where... Captain Janeway, she's she's surprised that he's taken the initiative to be the ship's counselor. He even admitted to her that, quote, you know, in the absence of a ship's counselor, I've been developing a psychiatric subroutine to add to my program. Yeah. I'll be even more. (laughs) And then, of course, and the way that doctor says is I'll be even more valuable to you than I am now. (laughs) Yeah. So 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 always always a little bit of ego (laughs) inserted into uh, what the doctor is doing. Yeah. And in only a way that Bob Picardo can deliver a line like that. Yeah. But we have made a point past the next generation, and especially at the in Deep Space Nine and in Voyager, where we felt like the cast in universe needed or still needs a counselor 
of sorts. You know, they got one in Esri mm-hmm. in Deep Space Nine, albeit way late in season seven. Yeah. Well, season seven, way late in the series. Yeah. And we kind of got there a little bit with kind of Kess and Neelix tag teaming mm-hmm. that, you know, a for for all intents and purposes, kind of like the the confessional for the yeah. you know, for the crew. Yeah. But now we have like a legitimate decision for the chief medical officer of this ship to also become the chief counselor of the ship and having the the wherewithal and the independence in his programming to choose to do so. But remember when he said that he wanted to delete himself all the way back to his original programming because he caused harm because he was too prideful of what he believed he could have been an expert at immediately. That's where he was when he first turned on and became so much better at patient relations over the course of his experience. He has to give himself time to become better at being a counselor in those same kind of relationships because fixing those patients emotionally and mentally is a completely different learned skill set on the job as opposed to, you know, what he is already an expert at right now, which is fixing their physical ailments. And let's not forget here, this is not the first time that the doctor has wanted to simply erase the unpleasant part of his experience. Remember the doctor's holographic family, and he, the family, yeah, right, and he went right. through the uh, first of all the very Leave It to Beaver Brady Bunch esque uh, perfect family that mm-hmm. then turned into this very complicated, very emotionally fraught situation, and he just wanted to walk away from it. But the thing to learn is that you actually get better. You become a more well-rounded being and you have the ability to connect with your patients and just other people socially better when you have had a multitude of experiences. So a similar situation we find ourselves in here at the end uh, with his desire to just get rid of the bad part, but what does, as a domino effect, what does it actually mean for his ability to get better at the thing that is his purpose, which we can say is either programmed or maybe partially uh, just the influence of his experience? Uh, That is his mission, is to be a healer and to actually show real compassion and yeah, he, he wants to erase the part that made him expand his programming, but but that part, that gave him determination and drive and a protective attitude over Seven's ordeal. It, this was a true show of compassion, and the consequence to that is that, yeah, sometimes you get it wrong, sometimes very wrong, disturbingly wrong, and even if he were to wipe that out, it it just think about it. Like, let's say he wiped out that part of his programming. Does that mean that he wiped out the experience as well? Like the the factual information about what happened? Because Seven doesn't get to erase it. The rest of right. the crew doesn't get to erase it. The ship's logs don't erase it. I, he definitely, even if we hadn't already been through this very concept uh, with the doctor's family, he just simply shouldn't be able to get off that easily. And I'm glad, uh, obviously, Janeway made the right decision there. Uh, right. Uh, interesting, though, that he would request it. He, he had the wherewithal to request it instead of just doing it unilaterally. I think that that's more for the audience's sake, you know, than anything else, because mm-hmm. I think it's just one of those reminders of, 
you know, we've we've referenced this before, and I think we did it with with the Doctor's family. You know, as as just mm-hmm. a, a point of reference in Star Trek, we've seen this before in Star Trek Five, where Kirk says, "You can't wave your pain away." Mm-hmm. You know, with a wave of a magic wand, it makes you who you are. It makes you a part of like your the overall um, experience of your life, and you make choices based on understanding the level of pain that that mistake inflicted on someone or yourself. And that's what Janeway is saying. She's like, "You're going to learn from this. It yeah. may not be right now." But the next time this happens, you're going to remember, yeah, that, you know, my jumping to, you know, conclusions, you know, emotionally about a certain thing that didn't go that it didn't work well for me last time. Yeah. Right. It put a lot of people in emotional turmoil and, you know, compromised a lot of the situation. So I think that that's I mean, it was a great it was a great moment, I think, for the doctor in this episode. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. We, we said that we would start with light things. Obviously, the the, the very concept, oh, yeah. the, the very concept <laughs> of erasing memories and trying to sort of evade consequence like that. Not exactly the lightest thing, but there is kind of a light thing that I do want to bring up. And, and I mentioned it in the last segment, the protocol of bargaining with an alien for weapons more powerful than anything we've already got. I wondered if Starfleet comes across that situation often. What is the protocol? What is the rule for that? Like, are is Starfleet under normal circumstances in the Alpha Quadrant where you're just lousy with Starfleet ships? Are they in the business of just acquiring whatever the next best destructive thing is? And can a captain make that call? Because it seems like there would be rules against that. It just seems like that's a thing you can't do. And then by uh, extrapolation, what does that do for Voyager's reputation? <laughs> like, COVID already knows that maybe Voyager doesn't have the best reputation in the Delta Quadrant. At least we're 10,000 light years away from where we started. And yes, they are facing more and more hostile enemies. But what what does this do for them? Like, if they were to walk around with this weapon that we saw in the teaser that can just destroy anything, go through anybody's shielding, what, what mm-hmm. like, okay, yeah, Voyager's bad, now Voyager's even worse. And even though they think they're going to have that just for when they need it, like the Herogen, or if they encounter the Borg again. Yeah, and by the way, would that cannon work on the Borg? Or would the Borg be able to adapt? I guess we'll never know, because... Once things go pear-shaped in this episode, we're just not going to get those weapons. That's a really interesting negotiating scene at the very beginning because of, you know, yeah, sure, Coven laid it on a little thick. He's like, you know, you're going to be the most powerful this in the Mm -hmm. known quadrant. I get that. But I remember when you and I both kind of winced when, I'm not sure exactly which episode it was, but... A Voyager was known as the warship Voyager. Oh yeah, wherever it yeah. goes, death is in its wake. Yeah. I'm like, oh, that's that's not obviously the purpose of Starfleet. Yeah, but you know there are obviously you know choices that Janeway needs to you know make in order to ensure the survival of her ship and her crew. But doing something like this, okay, so say for example, she she uses this as a show of force to the the future enemies of Voyager in the quadrant as they get closer and closer and closer to the border of the Alpha Quadrant. And these these you know enemies scan her ship and they're like oh they got that okay yeah. sure it's a deterrent yeah right? and that yeah. might be that might all that there is to it but they finally get back to the Alpha Quadrant with unknown alien technology and then Section Thirty One gets a hold of it or Starfleet technology gets a hold of it and start breaking that down yeah does everyone in the Federation now get to share I in this technology know. yeah and what does that do mm-hmm. to the shifting of power in the Alpha Quadrant because all of a sudden then 
the Romulans are like, well, now. Yeah, you know, yeah, the, yeah. You know, the power balance has just changed. We just allied ourselves with you all in the Dominion War. Do we get a little bit of that Delta Quadrant technology? Right, exactly. Right? There's a whole so. can of worms that at least we don't have to deal with. But, you know, I just wonder, like, uh, what would that ultimately lead to? Totally not what the episode is about. I get that, but it was a thought that had crossed my mind. Now, what is the John, episode about? <laughs> because you, you, you can't, you can't, you can't make a cannon omelet without breaking a few noses, <laughs> right? That's that is so true. Truer words have never been spoken on this podcast. Now, let's talk about uh, repressed memories a bit. Not valid from a scientific or even from a legal standpoint. There was sort of a trend, at least in this country. When I say this country, I mean the U.S. That's where we are. Don't know where you are. Who's listening to it? Uh, but there was kind of a trendy thing, especially starting in the early 80s, about repressed memories being a thing. And uh, psychologists, uh, a very dubious standing, exploiting this I think the popular opinion got away from that pretty quickly, but it also kind of stuck in the pop culture. See also Mission Log 246. That goes quite a ways back to the TNG episode Dark Page, where we talked about the validity or non-validity of repressed memories. I want to preface what we're going to talk about here with something that I only looked up after I had taken my notes. I, Norman, I think you do this too, and and I do this very specifically. I try to take all my uh, reactionary notes about an episode of Star Trek before I do any research, before I try to find out either what did other people think or maybe what was a writer's intention, that kind of thing. And I was very surprised to see that both Brian Fuller and Lisa Klink uh, were very straightforward about the premise of this episode being a false repressed memory. In their minds, and we can always ask about this when we have one or both of them with us in a room together, but in their minds, there is no ambiguity when it comes to the script or, or their vision of the story about this being a false memory. Now, the director... Jesus Trevino says that in his mind, in his direction of the episode, one of the things that he liked was the ambiguity of what happens when we get to the end here. So my notes, I feel, are a little more about that ambiguity because, again, I had not clued into that about Brian and Lisa's intention with the script until well after I had written what I wrote. But I think either way, I think no matter how we slice this, what it comes down to, there are things that we have to analyze and discuss about the doctor's decisions, but then there are things we also have to analyze and discuss about not just Seven's experience, but the crew's reaction to Seven's experience, because I think that is what is so crucial here. And from the get-go, I, I, absolutely chilling to hear Seven of Nine say of Coven, he violated me. It was so disturbing and heartbreaking to hear from Seven, who we all know and love as a character, but who at her core, uh, one of the 
most defining things about that character is that she was via Annika Hansen was violated by the Borg. And then let us not forget taken away from that, taken away from her only frame of reference by this other entity, Starfleet, Voyager, Janeway, etc. And now experiencing these feelings all over again. And of course, reliving that trauma in the Raven. And it is very nice to see the crew rally around her, that they believe her and the validity of her experience. But then I felt like, well, where does this get us at the end? Because I'm really feeling like there are missing scenes that come at the end after this reveal that maybe they got the evidence wrong. Maybe she had that experience with Coven, maybe not. In any case, she still lives with the feeling of it. And as we know, those feelings are incredibly powerful because she has already lived through these multiple traumas in her life. And when the doctor gets to the emotional heart of it, that Coven allegedly violated her individuality, I'm interested also in what part of this upset Seven the most. Is it that the Borg would not have allowed Coven to use their tech in that way? Or is it that her individuality is a weakness? Because this has also been a struggle that she has had. I apologize for my monologuing, but that was a lot of stuff that was on my mind about this episode and about her journey in it. You brought up so many incredibly complex points. And I do have a section in my notes that kind of addresses it in one way, Mm -hmm. but it also, I think, sheds a spotlight on, I think, what the failure is in the investigation that allows this ambiguity to take place. Okay. Let's talk about that for sure. For sure. Okay. Yeah. I came to the conclusion that not only was Seven in in some way maybe maligned justice-wise at the end, but I also think that Mm -hmm. she was gaslit, and I also think that the doctor was gaslit by himself. Oh, Because of the investigation. Because of the investigation or lack thereof. The scene that bothers me the most in this episode Mm -hmm. is when Tuvok's investigation of Coben's lab is inconclusive. The evidence that he gathers there neither proves or disproves Coven's innocence or Seven's accusations. But when Janeway says to Seven, there's no doubt in my mind that you believe what you're saying, but is it possible, just possible, that the memories you and the doctor recovered aren't accurate? To me, that's Janeway maneuvering the doctor by referencing him and then also maneuvering Seven into a way that they don't believe the truth of their situation and they're also casting reasonable doubt on Coven's story. Yeah. So when they replicated the supposed accident, the alleged accident mm-hmm. that caused Seven's nanoprobes to be scattered across Coven's lab, the doctor says the nanoprobes are regenerating the exact same pattern we saw in Coven's laboratory. It appears to be a spontaneous response, which could have only been caused by the energy released from the Thoron weapon. The operative words are could have. Yep. Not did yep. or didn't. Could have. Right? So that's inconclusive evidence based on a controlled scientific recreation of the pivotal moment, which should have cleared Coven and corroborate his story, but didn't. Yeah. So at the end of this episode, Seven believes, or she was maneuvered to believe that she could have been wrong, which led to the pursuit, which resulted in Coven's death, which she feels guilty about. Yeah. Because she was maneuvered to believe she was wrong. The doctor in the same way. 
He has so much guilt at the end over what happened to Coven because he too was maneuvered into believing that he was wrong based on circumstantial and inconclusive evidence brought by Tuvok and corroborated and supported by Janeway. So why didn't they come to their defense when not even true reasonable doubt was offered in the investigation. Well, that that's the thing. And and you you use that word uh, that I was waiting for, which is inconclusive, because all we get to do with that other experiment, with the follow-up experiment, is we get to add a new candidate hypothesis to the other candidate hypothesis. That's it. We don't get to completely disregard the original candidate hypothesis. We still, I think, don't know the exact truth in the situation. And but, but let me throw this out there, too. Let's say that there was a form of evidence here that completely exonerated Coven and, and that said that even if there was an overload, that his intentions were still such that he was manipulating or violating or doing something untoward when it came to Seven. We're still left at the end of this episode with Seven having been through this traumatic experience. She's still living that experience, whether or not it perfectly lines up with the evidence at hand, right? And I guess the thing that really worries me at the end of this is it's sort of washing our hands up and saying, well, didn't happen you use gaslit, which is exactly the word that somebody else here very smart in this office used describing this episode. Well, it, it didn't happen the way you think it happened. So now we just get to move on. And my concern is like, no, no, no. The, the same way that Seven of Nine is living with the trauma of Annika Hansen's violation and the trauma of being ripped out of the only familiar environment that she had – for her formative years. Now you have this other layer of trauma, which still has to be addressed. So it's almost like when the doctor comes in and says, I want to erase the part of my mind that is a psychologist or counselor. The captain needs to say like, no, 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 no. You have somebody on board here who needs counseling and needs help. And whether or not the factual information lines up the way we thought it would uh, corroborate that evidence, She's still experiencing this. She still needs this. And that, that's the thing that, uh, that, that kind of worried me is, is just feeling like Seven gets pushed out of the equation once we've decided what the science says. Time to see if John and Norm have any regrets about watching this episode and if they will try to delete those regrets. Well, we've made it to the end of Retrospect, where at the end of our Mission Log episode, we are going to look at it with Retrospect. Of course you knew that was coming. Of course yeah. you knew that was coming. Right? Get a retrospective look <laughs> at exactly. uh, Retrospect. Uh, retrospect. Yes. Yeah. You know, to look at, uh, one, if the episode holds up, does it withstand the test of time, and of course, see if we were able to retrospectively find any morals, meanings, or messages in Retrospect. So... How many times can we say retrospect at the end? So many times. So many, many times. times. Yeah. yeah. Right. One for each pad on Voyager. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's so many. Everybody's got at least three. 
it, there is kind of a weird, there's neither a good nor a bad thing about this episode, just kind of a, a weird and interesting thing about this episode is the timeline, uh, because there are some weeks on Voyager where we're fully aware of how much time has passed between episodes, or we know that we are meeting an alien for the first time. I, I like that the teaser in this episode just starts right in the middle, where apparently we've already known Coven. But at the same time, it's a little odd that apparently Voyager has already been there for a long time, maybe at the Intharan planet. Again, certainly not bad. It's just a little bit disorienting because then we have flashback sequences, these memory sequences, and we're trying to learn, well, wait, how long have they been there? How long have they known this guy? What is the relationship here? It's just kind of disorienting, maybe raises a few more questions than it answers. But as I have said many times before on this show, I do like it when you can just start in the middle of the action. Not everything needs a huge backstory or to walk you through every moment. I, I thought it was a good dramatic choice to make Coven so defensive and off-putting. Maybe not so much because it, it is telegraphing the thing with Seven and manipulating us as the audience. But but just the fact that he's an arms dealer <laughs> You know, right away, we should be suspicious. And as an arms dealer, like right away, this is not a guy that we want to spend much time with anyway. And yet, here we are. And I do think that it is a bold choice to make this story take the root of investigating repressed memory and where that leaves both Seven and the Doctor. The the characters and I think the script's intent is that Coven didn't do it, and Seven's memories are false. However, the evidence revealed later on the show doesn't necessarily rule out that possibility, as we have mentioned ad nauseum in this conversation. It just, again, it adds this additional candidate hypothesis. So what can we make of that? Well, I think the answer is to do what this episode does very well earlier on, which is to believe Seven and be sympathetic to her trauma. The details can come, the details can be investigated, but we have to be sympathetic to her experience and to her trauma and then work to not let our sense of justice get ahead of our actual understanding. I feel like in the reality of the show, we still have to work this out with her, though, since it is another layer of her trauma emerging, as, as is the, the implication, the indication here. So I'll, we'll get into morals, meanings, messages after this, of course. But I, I think that even if this is an imperfect episode, I think its strength is in dealing with important and heavy topics – for a couple of our main characters who happen to not be fully human characters. We have a hologram based on a human, and we have a human-Borg hybrid, and this is Star Trek do doing what it does very well, which is taking those non-human characters, but really allowing them to have the emotional, psychological weight of what are very human experiences. It allows us as the audience to see that reflection back on ourselves. So for the imperfections, I, I think we can find great value in that exploration here, even if there are things that may be problematic with the episode. Uh, how about you, Norman? 
Yeah, I like that uh, we're looking at these two non-human characters emerging with a lot of human frailty. And I think that mm-hmm. that makes a really good connection with the audience because, you know, uh, you know stories, uh, TV series, movies, they always work better when you can see yourself in the character. You can empathize, you know, or sympathize with the character and know that, you know, these heroes that are put on screen, you know, largest life are not perfect. Right. That's mm-hmm. that's where we get the investment of, OK, let's see how this person's journey goes, because I can find myself in this person and maybe I can find my way following this person's journey, their growth, their setbacks, you know, their accolades, you know, their achievements and also their failures. And I think that that's what's really interesting about this episode, because it's it's a very mixed bag episode for me. Mm-hmm. And I know that that's kind of a cop out answer when we're looking at does it hold up? Because. From everything that you said, I think it does. You know, it's a very interesting way of looking into and exploring kind of like this fragility of these non-human characters. And what happens when they start embracing these new emergent emotions and dynamics within themselves? Mm-hmm. Because if they're not supported correctly, they could fail before they succeed. And that's I think that's, that's where Janeway is at her strength in this episode. She sees what's happening. And this is the best Janeway for me, where she knows how to support you know, at the end, like with the doctor, she knows how to support what is happening because this is how you grow, you know, not only as a person, but this, this is how you grow, you know, as a family, as a crew, you understand yeah. that everyone's individual needs, not everyone can be treated exactly the same way, exactly the same time. You know, that doesn't work for everybody. It certainly doesn't work for people or these beings that don't understand conformity like seven. Right. Right. She doesn't right. understand that. Yeah. I wouldn't say that understand conformity from now being newly human. So that's where I really like this episode. Mm-hmm. I think that Jerry and Robert are phenomenal together. And yeah. I think that we're seeing a lot more of the series lean on that fact. I'm not sure for better or worse, but you know what? It's entertaining to watch when it happens. So I have to give them points for that. There's a lot of complexity in this episode. And I think it's it's great that not only could we not get all, to all of our notes yeah. in this, but we're probably going to not even get to all of the conversation that we need to get to in our Mission Log After Dark live chat that we have, yes. right? Because yes. yeah. we're going to get so many more eyeballs and so many more reactions to this from directions that we've never even really considered. So I can't wait for that. Yeah, That's when Star Trek is great, when you can bring that to the table. My biggest problem with this episode, and I know you gave him a little bit of a pass, but my biggest problem mm-hmm. with the episode is Coven. Because yeah. both in the actor's performance and how he was written, because there's no nuance to this character. This guy is one note. Yeah. And he's he <laughs> yeah. and, and one note that specifically says he's written and acted to be the target of suspicion and blame. Period. There's no empathy with him. Not even at the end. We don't really feel for him because there's no reason to. And maybe that's the point. But at the same time, though, it removes the ambiguity of where I think Jerry wanted the story to be, or Lisa Clink wanted the story to be. They wanted it to be ambiguous and Ken, you know, and Ken Biller. They wanted yeah. it to be a little bit more cut and dry and a little less gray. And I think there's a lot of gray area that we as the audience are interpreting because he starts off as a target of our animosity. And because of our built-in love for the characters, the Doctor and Seven are obviously right. And they still very well may be obviously right. But where it gets lost in this episode is the investigation. The investigation is inconclusive and supports neither a defense, you know, nor a conviction 
towards either side's claims. So how are we supposed to, how are we supposed to, as the audience, champion one side or the other, especially the characters that we love? Because can we get past our initial animosity towards Coven as Janeway couldn't get past her initial animosity towards Coven? You know, as you're saying that, I'm, I'm thinking about something that truly is missing here. So you're right. Coven, Coven starts out being pushy and aggressive, and then he turns into defensive. And basically, those are the two modes of Coven that we get. And there is no point where the audience feels sympathy for him. There's no point where the audience feels like, well, maybe he didn't do it. And what what truly are the stakes for him if he is taken down by this investigation? And I think part of the problem with that is that if we're not seeing that as the audience, then that is a much harder thing for us to buy at the end when Seven experiences remorse. Because there's no scene with Seven having even a glimmer of Coven's humanity. Seven can see that in other people, I think. Seven understands that she has friendships with other people on board, as new and as kind of tenuous as as those may be. But for her to experience remorse, I think we have to establish that there is some heart, there is some uh, recognition within Coven, and we don't get that. So when she says remorse at the end, I'm like, yeah, but he was kind of a jerk. I'm not really feeling remorse that he's gone. You know, right. I, right. I, I, I have an easier time believing that the doctor feels remorse because he recognizes the course of his own actions. But Seven has felt nothing but victimized this whole time. And she's right. waiting for the moment of revenge slash justice which is not going to come to her so she can feel a loss of not getting that which i'll I'll get to in just a second but yeah remorse is an odd word because i i I don't think we can truly feel remorseful about the way that coven is portrayed here i think that it's hard to it's it's hard to associate remorse with a character that has no redeeming value yeah right it's or at least redeeming value that we are able to see. So yeah. for all intents and purposes, he's just kind of a blank slate. He's yeah. there just to facilitate or manipulate we, the audience, and our emotional reaction to that character and how he affects the characters that we love. That doesn't make him a good character. It just makes, yeah. him, you know, it, yeah. it makes him a vehicle to maneuver our emotions, but that doesn't characterize him in any way. Yeah. All right, well, let's get into morals, meanings, messages. I, you know, I really appreciate that ending scene with the EMH. Of course, we know how it has to turn out, but the valuable lesson there is that you can't escape your feelings or your responsibilities, even mm-hmm. if you're an EMH, which again is a proxy for all of us human viewers of a show like this. And I, I mentioned it in the last segment, but I'll mention it again. We've talked before a Mission Log about repressed memory and why that's not really a thing that is admissible or given much scientific credence today. They can be manipulated, falsified, fabricated, etc. When I first watched this for our purposes here, I immediately, my, my mind went to discussion points around this episode being about Seven's violation. And it is to some extent, but I, I think the bigger picture here is that 
this is about something just as important, which is the journey that the doctor finds himself on. He is willing and able to let his preconceptions run away with him. He must be right because he believes he's right. And he goes to great lengths to convince the rest of the crew, including Seven, about this. His conclusion leads the way because he feels right, and the hunt for evidence is colored by his conclusion that he wants to be true. Uh, I think it's all very telling and very disturbing that the doctor tells Seven, here's that line, when Coven gets what he deserves, you're going to feel much better. That is scary, folks. It really is that here is this developed artificial intelligence, this developed manufactured intelligence, as we say, telling this to someone who is in a developmental stage emotionally. So for whose benefit was he saying that, hers or his? Revenge and justice are two very different things. And what is so disturbing about that line is it sounds like this feel-good hit of revenge instead of it truly being about the pursuit of justice. That is a very worrisome thing. It, it is scary. That, that is a dangerous place to be. And we should hope that anyone doing an investigation, whether it's scientific or legal or criminal, allows the evidence to lead them to the answers, not the other way around. And for that matter, does that suggestion that the doctor has plant the idea that revenge is acceptable in Seven's mind? It seems to. There's a two-word phrase for the doctor's thinking that is one of my favorite ideas. And I just happen to be discussing it, again, with somebody very smart at our office. And that phrase is confirmation bias. The doctor was lousy with it in this episode. And that is a very human trait. And now he has to deal with the consequences of it. But hopefully he learns from it just like the rest of us should. How about you, Norman? I mean, that's a great point. I also wanted to kind of, you know, springboard off of what you're saying about Mm -hmm. the doctor's phrase to Seven, because I think that's probably one of the most dangerous things he's ever said to anyone. Yeah. Like, especially Seven, because Seven is, again, she's this emerging emotional state and a developing new human being. And now the only thing that, because she doesn't know where to place those feelings. She said so very specifically, like, this is the first time I'm feeling this. What does this mean? Why am I feeling anxiety? What is this? I don't know where to place it. Now he's basically... He's compartmentalizing this very specific emotional reaction to her, and she's categorizing it as such because she's still Borg. That means yeah. that punishment equals satisfaction, right? right. You know, or revenge right. equals satisfaction, not justice, not law, not due process, but punishment and revenge, and it'll make you feel better. So much like you know the Pavlovian experiment, if she doesn't get revenge, she doesn't feel better. And she doesn't know where to put that at the end. And I'm not sure if that's what Brian Fuller and Lisa meant, you know, when they were crafting the the, the through line for these characters in this episode. But Mm -hmm. that's, I think, that's how we interpreted it. And that's, I think that's kind of like, uh, it's problematic, but at, at the same time, it's kind of like the beauty of releasing art into the ether, right? You know, like we all see it differently. One thing that, you know, we saw almost exactly the same was kind of like the conclusion here. Like you can't reset mistakes you make in life. How many times have we just spent, and maybe this is that scene. Maybe this is the reason why I love 
Bob Picardo as the doctor kind of just daydreaming, you know, through his window at the end of this episode or towards the end of this episode. Maybe he is in that point of time where we are in point in times of our life where we're looking just out into space saying, I really wish I could take that back. I yeah. really wish I could have done things differently. I really wish I had an Omega 13, right? Because you want yeah. that 13 seconds back to, to, to correct a mistake that you made. He knows that he made a mistake. He knows that he has to now deal with it. He knows that, you know, and he just, he doesn't know where to put it because he's never gone through this experience before. Janeway tells him exactly where to put it. You have to put it in yourself. You have to live with it. Yeah. You know, if you really want to be human, you can't have the best of it and not the worst of it, Right. But it's really, it's really important that Seven sees that you have to have the best of it and the worst of it also. You know, now as for Coven, of course, that we want to see due process done in the right way. I'm not saying that because Coven fled that he's guilty. We know that for a fact, historically, it is rife with examples of people like the hurricane, right? You know, mm -hmm. who are people that were unjustly wronged, imprisoned, and, mm -hmm. and, and lived sentences that were, you know, that were unjust, you know, or beyond their control. But at the same time, though, if that happens, the people that sentenced these people, the people that were part of this system that made this mistake, hopefully that they've also learned from this, that sometimes they're like, I need to do better. And I need to be able to you know, to be able to bring all of these different, you know, elements in this case to justice so that I don't ruin somebody else's life. It depends though. Like, you know, mm -hmm. whose life was really ruined here? Was yeah. it COVID's? Because we don't really know anything about him. Yeah. Or was it Seven's? Because now she's left with this emotional trauma. Or was it the doctor's? Because he thought he was doing the right thing by taking the initiative and he's wrong. Mm -hmm. So where does that leave our characters? Yeah. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com, and for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, The Killing Game, Parts 1 and 2. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, Tom Kozak, Julie Miller, Mike Richards, Mike Schadabel, Paul Shadwell, and David Takechi. Nanoprobes everywhere. There are so many uses for nanoprobes where you work and play. In this educational film strip, I will explain. And transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.